0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Are you there? Come out from under your blanket. It'll be okay. Uh, every angle and an update of COVID-19, what it is doing to Canada and how we are all coping. And we'll get through it. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
1: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. We're on the phone with the cable company trying to stop the internet outages. Good luck, Dad. You're going to need it. Hey, whoa, whoa. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Hang on,
0: I'm all tangled. Junior's gone and twisted all the cords on me. I don't know. All right. Uh, good afternoon, Eddie. <laughs> 900-CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station, keeping us on the air. It is the Scott Thompson Home Show, week number 18 of. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. It uh, starts on the website. You'll also find the commentary there today, hoping that uh, everybody who's involved, government, uh, teachers, unions, and boards, can all make this happen, and by the time September rolls around, we don't end up with another uh, situation we had before. COVID-19. Feel free to weigh in on that. We would love to hear from you also on Facebook and Twitter. You can send us a note 24/7, Scott Thompson at 900chml.com. And first of all, though some pretty exciting news locally. Uh, and, and this is in regard to uh, the downtown entertainment uh, district and and plans that are being made there to, uh, as you know, two proposals uh, uh, up in front of City Hall to uh, to take over these facilities. And tomorrow we're supposed to hear more on all of this. So let's bring in Larry DeAnne, former mayor, city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Larry, I hope you're doing well.
2: Thank you, Scott. I am doing well, and likewise.
0: Uh, so, Larry, a very exciting time for the city. What can we expect to hear tomorrow?
2: Well, it is exciting uh, because, um, obviously, uh, during this period of uh, COVID, um, where everything is a standstill, um, the, the city's plan, which looks forward, uh, is, uh, is a, a, a morale boost, uh, as well as, if it materializes, and I'm sure it will, uh, an economic boost. So, you know, the fact that that, uh, an announcement is going to be made means that people are confident uh, and uh, the city of Hamilton is going to rebound from this awful time in a good way. Um, Now, details uh, will uh, tell the tale, of course, uh, but I'm looking forward to an announcement that uh, is going to change um, the uh, the, uh, entertainment venues in our downtown, both in terms of how they look and in terms of who is uh, who is owning them so
0: uh, we've all been through this uh, those that have been around Hamilton for the last few decades we've seen a lot of things like this come and go Uh, Two concrete proposals here will we definitely see something come out of this either way
2: well uh, again the uh, and and I don't have any inside information at all so the uh, I'm waiting for the details like everybody else Um, uh, but I, I do know, I am familiar with the process. I looked at it very carefully. I did see the presentations uh, when they were made by the two proponents. Uh, and both plans that were presented um, are very ambitious, very expensive, uh, and very much driven by the private sector. Uh, so, you know, the private sector would not have gone to the trouble of formulating those plans if they didn't intend to follow through. Uh, now the public sector, meaning the city, <clears throat> is involved because the venues we're talking about, of course, are currently owned by the city. And so consequently, uh, the city will put up some properties that it owns, uh, but it's willing, according to the presentations that were made, it's willing to cede ownership uh, over some of those properties uh, and programs. And, um, and I think that... Uh, Um, You know, the the details will tell us exactly how that's going to unfold, uh, but that's very ambitious. Uh, Part of the city's rationale as well, uh, you've got to give credit to um, Councillor Marula in the day when he uh, said, you know, we should, we, meaning the city, should get out of uh, running and owning these facilities that have to do more with entertainment than with uh, uh, needed services for our citizens. And maybe the private sector can step up. I thought when he made that comment, and I've told him this personally, that he was crazy. I thought nobody's going to step up because the private sector wants to make an investment if there's a return on that investment. Uh, and yet, uh, here we are after many, many months. Um, the uh, the two proponents, uh, the single uh, Mr. Ranage and the conglomerate group, uh, Uh, led by the Mercanti Group, but others as well, have put uh, some dollars behind their proposals and some ambitious plans. So uh, we'll see tomorrow exactly what what the city is going to do with those proposals and who gets what.
0: Uh, You were talking about seeing both of the presentations and two strong proposals, from what I understand. Similarities and differences of the two.
2: Well, of course, this is some months ago now, pre-COVID, but from what I recall, uh, essentially the big difference, uh, the, the huge difference, uh, is that uh, the, uh, uh, the Mercanti Group wanted to move the convention center from its current location. And everybody, by the way, agrees that the convention center is far too small to attract the kinds of conventions that generate interest beyond the smaller uh, events. Uh, they want to locate, uh, relocate that to the Eden Center, um, and, uh, and create a new convention center there. Um, that's one of the difference, differences. Whereas <clears throat> Mr. Uh, Vranich wanted to expand the current site, but he also wanted to build some additional, uh, space, office space tower, as well as another hotel, uh, in the downtown as well. And of course, then there is work uh, on the uh, on the first uh, Ontario Centre or the former Cops Coliseum uh, that both planned uh, to varying degrees as well, as well as some cosmetic work uh, to Hamilton Place, uh, the first Ontario Concert Hall now, uh, and the Studio Theatre. Um, so, so and the the total amount that uh, in terms of dollars that the Mercanti Group was earmarking a total around 500 million uh and uh, mr uh, ranich's total was 200 million at least Uh, and so once we know the plans we will know more or less um, uh, what the commitment in terms of dollars will be for those venues
0: so what goes into arriving at a decision which apparently we will we will receive tomorrow how do you decide something like this what's the process
2: well so staff has been working very hard, I'm sure, uh, with all of the proponents trying to trying to hone in on uh, uh, timeline um, uh, as well as the specifics of the deal. And if they're coming forward with a recommendation tomorrow, it means that whoever is involved on the other side um, has agreed uh, to uh, to uh, whatever the city has put together. Uh, and so that there are a number of things that council was looking for. One was um, uh, limiting, if not eliminating entirely, uh, the city contribution to those venues, the yearly contributions that are made. Whether that's possible or not is another story, but that's one of the drivers as far as the city was concerned. And another one was speed. Uh, They want to see something done as quickly as possible. Remember... There's a, a corollary story here and that's the Bulldogs and Michael Andlauer who wanted mm. to move um, the arena up on the mountain, if you recall, Scott. And the council said no to that. They want to see it done downtown, but they promised an expedited uh, renovation to accommodate Mr. Andlauer and his team as well in the downtown area. So as well as... as uh, uh, limiting tax contributions, taxpayer contributions, speed so that it can be done expeditiously, as as opposed to as you said earlier, you know, spinning the wheels and not seeing anything done uh, beyond that. And I think the um, the the third element that I would be looking at for sure is uh, okay. Um, these groups that uh, are in front of us, can they deliver? Um, are they in fact capable of mounting the major uh work that needs to be done, both from a financial perspective, and so there's some financial due diligence that needs to be done, uh, and also in terms of experience. Have they done this kind of thing before? Uh do or or are they simply taking a stab in the dark? Now, <clears throat> with each of those uh criteria, again uh once we see the uh, the details as much as they're willing to show us tomorrow uh we'll be able to uh judge um uh whether they've made a wise decision uh based on who can do it how fast can they do it and do they have the wherewithal to do it on the wherewithal part uh certainly we've seen the investment that mr vanich has made downtown hundreds of millions of dollars already and the group that, um, has, uh, a group to self around the Mercanti group. Um, whether you talk about the Palettas or uh Leuna or any, any of them, uh, you know, they've got some pretty deep pockets themselves and they've done some major work. So it's a fascinating, uh, uh, exercise in decision-making and we'll see what happens. I mean, I've got some, I've got my own feelings about what might happen, but, uh, Pure conjecture on my own part, and uh, not based on anything other than, you know, having having seen these things happen before.
0: Okay, so let's go there. If you want to share those <laughs> thoughts, and well, how close how close is this race?
2: Well, so so if if past this prologue, um, council always looks for um, they always look for the compromise, right? They they they'd rather not see a win lose. They'd rather see a win win so i'm looking for um, a win-win uh deal to be struck uh where everybody uh is accommodated the city wins because it gets these renewed venues defray some of its cost, uh and uh, and um, uh both parties uh that are involved that uh, by the way are uh are are stellar um, uh business interests and community-minded interests in the city, based on what they've done in the past, uh, deserve deserve some recognition. So is it possible to be a Solomon here? I'm not sure, but I'll bet you it's being thought thought about.
0: Wow, so it could be possible that both have some sort of investment in this, splitting up the pie, per se?
2: Well, you know, and and again, this is wild conjecture on my part. I honestly have no inside knowledge. Everybody's been I've tried, but everybody's been very tight lipped about this. Uh, but um, uh, if I were making the decision, I want to look at that at least. Is it possible to have a, a collaborative uh, decision um, rather than a win lose decision? Now, that may not be possible. And in which case, then they'll have to make a decision. It sounds like they have made a decision, they're presenting it to council. Uh, but if you recall, um, when when HECFI uh, disappeared uh, uh, many years ago now, over 10 years ago now, um, and there were some competing interests vying to operate the venues, uh, at the end of the day, there was a compromise then. So I, I'm being guided a little bit by that history.
0: Uh, you said uh, way back when that um, you know that you you couldn't see this working. And where is the return here? So where is the return for well, the two parties?
2: So that so I mean that's a great question. Um, and of course I, I, I obviously don't know the business plan that uh, the either uh, or both proponents um, have uh, have based their own analyses on. But for sure, these are businesses, right? They need to make an investment. They want to make an investment. They want to see a return on that investment. So um, there has to be a return, which means that the convention business will drive tourism, uh, will drive hotel spaces, will drive activity, restaurant uh, use. I mean, all of those good things. And when you look at the partners um, that that are that are looking at this uh at this opportunity uh they i mean that's their lane they're in that business uh and so they've come to the conclusion that any investment is worth is worth it because at the end of the day it it will render a return and uh, and a return also for the city in terms of new venues exciting venues additional venues uh upgraded venues um so i you know maybe i'm being a little Polianish about this? I don't think so. And if you look at the newspaper article uh, and the quote from some of the councillors, including Councillor Danko, uh, who said, mm, without yeah. giving details, said, "You yeah, know, this is big." So I, I'm, uh, I, 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 I've bit, I've bitten. Uh, you know, I'll bite, and and uh, now I'll wait to see the details uh, to see if indeed that's going to be true or not.
0: Larry Diani has been with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, talking about tomorrow uh, plans unveiled, who will be the winner of uh, the deal to uh, take over Hamilton's entertainment facilities, and uh, the excitement surrounding that is certainly starting to build. Larry, thanks for the time, as always. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. All right. uh, As we head into stage three, or at least parts of the province, head into stage three. The Greater Toronto Hamilton area is still excluded from that. Down to Windsor Essex at this point, but the uh, rest of Ontario heading into stage three, opening up uh, pretty much almost everything. uh, Certainly with uh, very different protocols and and COVID nineteen conditions in in order to allow that to happen. But we're going to see things like uh, restaurants and and bowling alleys and such open up. Are these indoor spaces breeding grounds for COVID-19? Let's bring in Dion Elman, Associate Professor, Department of Mechanical and in- in industri- in Industrial Engineering, Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering Director and Medical Operations Research Lab that's in the University of Toronto. And with us now, Dion, or Dion thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So, how concerned are you about Ontario entering into Stage 3 and the opening of these other uh, facilities?
1: Um, well, I'd say I have some mild concerns, but uh, not as much concerns uh, as I had uh, with some of the other uh, decisions on when to uh, when to progress in the phases of reopening. Uh, you know, one thing about Ontario is that um, certainly every part of the province is, is at a different state with COVID right now, like you just mentioned, that the GTA and Hamilton areas are you know, still uh, maybe not so much struggling with COVID, but uh, there is still some significant COVID prevalence uh, in our communities, whereas other parts of Ontario haven't had any new COVID cases in um, a few weeks. Uh, so it certainly makes sense for the areas that are, are more or less COVID-free, at least as far as we know right now, uh, to, uh, to progress in the reopenings.
0: What are your concerns as we head into stage 3 and these indoor facilities?
1: Yeah, well you just asked you know a good question, you know, are places like bars, clubs and bowling alleys breeding grounds for COVID? And you know, bowling alleys, you know, maybe not so much because you're more or less you know contained within your own social group uh when you're mm-hmm. when you're out uh, uh bowling, but uh bars and clubs, you know, Music is loud. People are drinking. They're, they're not going to be as uh, careful or, or as mindful as they could be. And having to speak very loudly means that, you know, you're most likely expelling a lot more droplets than you would in just a normal day-to-day conversation. So the risk of transmission is certainly much, much higher. And, and I would say that definitely bars and clubs are breeding grounds for COVID. But if you're in a community with very, very low COVID prevalence, then there might not be that much Covid to to be bred uh, in those in those places, so it may be safe. But of course, you know one of the you know outstanding questions uh, at really every point of this pandemic is how many infected people are there really um, in in each community, uh, because we only know about who's infected when they go and get tested and uh, and those results come back as positive. Right. and we know that lots of people might not be getting tested for whatever reason, or people might be having um, extremely mild symptoms during their infection, and they don't realize that it's actually COVID and not just a cold. Uh, and other people might be wholly asymptomatic. And there's, you know, a lot of um, uh, varying evidence uh, in the literature right now about uh, what percent of uh, COVID patients are fully asymptomatic. um, But one of the most recent studies that I saw looking at widespread population testing um, in Italy found that uh, potentially as much as 42.5% of people with COVID are asymptomatic, meaning no symptoms from beginning Mm. to end. Uh, So that certainly does present some concerns that there might be more infections than, than we know of, and that that could result in localized outbreaks as things start to open up in places where we think there is no COVID.
0: We've certainly seen reports uh, coming out of Quebec where they perhaps start, uh, tried to open a little early and seeing some uh, I- infection hotspots in bars and such. Can we just expect the same in southern Ontario when these things start to reopen up?
1: Um, well, in southern Ontario, if, if by southern Ontario you mean the GTA and Hamilton, uh, yeah. then then I would say almost certainly. Um, You know, we have, you know, larger, more dense populations than much of the rest of Ontario. So it stands to reason that there's more COVID around, even if the actual detected number of cases are, are lower. Uh, So it's really important for people to remember wherever you are, whether you're in like the greater Toronto, Hamilton area, or just anywhere else in, in Ontario that uh, seems to have very low COVID numbers, um, is to, you know, kind of take your easy wins where you can get them. Like wearing a mask when you're out and about is really easy and uh, can do just, you know, a tremendous um, amount of protection for, for your community in terms of um, keeping the COVID numbers down. Uh, maintaining physical distance is mostly really quite easy to do. Um, you know, so if everybody just does these, these little things, uh regardless of uh what stage of uh reopening we're at then uh things will probably be able to be under control even though we can most likely expect there to be flare-ups here and there that uh, can hopefully be a uh, kind of quickly uh, clamped down on um, by public health um, ontario and the various um regional public health units through through contact tracing and and testing um but we can all still do our part to make sure that things stay safe and that we don't have to uh, roll back any of these reopenings. Is
0: there a way to do this responsibly? I mean, many have said that, you know, their bars shouldn't even be open until there's a vaccine. Um, is there a way to do this responsibly?
1: Well, it's really hard to, to know. Um, you know, one can absolutely make an argument that we should wait until there's a vaccine before opening any of these high-risk areas. And me personally, I would fall into that category of wanting to be more conservative uh, and um, much more, I guess, mindful of the public health as opposed to uh, public recreation activities. Uh, but at the same time, if, if there is really very, very low or zero COVID prevalence in, in a community, then it might be worth the risk uh, to open these things up. Uh, of course, one thing you know some of these communities should be mindful of as they start to open bars and clubs is that they might have uh, people from say the Toronto and Hamilton area mm. traveling to those areas to uh to make use of their open facilities and uh you know yeah. that's when things start to become um a lot more questionable about uh, about safety because it's not definitely not yet safe to open those sorts of facilities um in uh, the GTA or Hamilton but you know people have cars people can call ubers you know people can take trains and uh, and end up you know anywhere else in the province nearby that might be open. So these communities might have more exposure, more risk than what they're anticipating. Uh, so if you ask me, it, w- it would be you know better to be safe and wait a little, lo- a little bit while longer, but uh, I can understand the uh, arguments uh, in favor of opening those areas now
0: uh does witnessing what we're seeing going on in the united states reinforce this with canadians you know uh, we just had someone on from uh, angus reed who who have done a poll that said after concern was declining it's starting to 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 spike again it's starting to to go back up do you think a lot of that is just simply uh you know at the beginning it's fatigue i'm tired of doing this but then you look south of the border you realize what's going on you think oh my goodness this is what we have to do
1: yeah i mean i i think what's going on in the u.s uh, is a real, you know, kind of a, a wake-up call or, or reminder to everywhere else in the world, not just Canada, uh, but especially us because of our close uh, relationship with our southern neighbors, uh, is, you know, this is how bad it could be if uh, if nothing is done, if we're not all careful, if uh, things are reopened too soon, or if they never closed at all. Um, and I think that that gives people a lot of, you know, renewed um, vigor about, uh, about being mindful, wearing masks, physical distancing, being okay with uh, businesses being uh, closed down still or being expected to, uh, to stay at home and work from home uh, for longer. Uh, because even though going through all of these uh, various stages of um, closures and isolation, it, it's difficult on all of us, but it could be way worse. And we only have to look at, really pick any state in the U.S. Uh, to see how much worse it could be.
0: Dion Ellman has been with us, Medical Operations Research Lab, University of Toronto, talking about the safety of indoor facilities as Ontario readies to enter stage three. Thank you, Dion. Good luck.
1: Thank you. You too.
0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. The latest information that we have Russian hackers trying to get access to COVID 19 vaccine data. That's according to intel agencies in Canada, the United States, and the U.K. Uh, many institutions have been hacked that are working on a vaccine for the uh, coronavirus. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in David Harris, Insignia, uh, Insignia Strategic Group. He's a terrorism expert and with us now. David, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well.
3: Oh, very well indeed. Thanks, Scott.
0: So uh, is the story here that, uh, that Russia is actually trying to do this or the fact that we detected it? <laughs>
3: Uh, or, and uh, this is an interesting aspect, that the response on a public relations level on the part of the three governments concerned, the three Western governments, Canada, the US, and the UK, has been so orchestrated for impacts and education of our publics. But you're right, there are a number of facets in all of this. The AP two, APT 28 uh, group, which uh, is uh, connected to all of this, according to the allegations, uh, a Russian-based hacking group, is reasonably well-known as such and in various other guises. It's been active, uh, operating against uh, these three countries and, of course, uh, as well, some people may be aware, Norway, the Norwegian Labour Party, all kinds of things. And the targeting can be, as it has been in the past, apparently political, (laughs) military, And here we have uh, some combination of health-related technology. Uh, On the surface, you have the possibility that anybody who may be sponsoring these particular attacks could be hoping to benefit from the competitive intelligence implicit in the product they take. So, in other words, you might be able, if uh, you were connected to this group, to take those secrets, take the technology, advance your own research, and maybe even race uh, the original uh, producers of the research in the West to market and get a get a jump on them. And with that, the economics and benefits to scale and all the rest in your favor, uh, edging out the actual genuine producers and originators mm. of all of this research. Uh, there's also then, you know, if you look at it from a kind of geostrategic uh, power position, the possibility that in, in achieving that, you may have undermined the capacity of the originating countries, Canada, the US, UK, and their research, uh, to meet the needs of uh, our own uh, populations, and thus uh, contribute to whatever chaos the Russian government particularly likes to So in western jurisdictions so we've seen other countries too playing in this uh, China uh, being fairly prominent among them I was just going of, about
0: to ask you what is China involved in here what is their uh, involvement in this sort of thing would they be doing the same
3: uh, we understand that they are uh, there's no specific indication by the way that they are collaborating in this alleged uh, breach but uh, it is absolutely the kind of thing the Chinese government uh, does underwrite and uh, they, too, have an interest in uh, undermining the uh, stability of Western governments because, of course, they reap an implicit political, military, and other advantage from uh, achieving that, which is a reason why these various countries, if given the opportunity, seem more than inclined to uh, play in electoral games. And We know all about some of the hacking attempts that have been made by various hostile jurisdictions into uh, political parties and groupings in the West. I think this um, particular group, the APT28, has been implicated, according to the British statement, in uh, messing in the 2019 British election. So you can see that once you have these basic tools, you can, that is, hacking tools, you can apply them to Mm. a variety, indeed a myriad of uh, of targeting and categories of information
0: you can see especially around a pandemic and a vaccination how valuable that would be is this organized crime trying to make money here by selling this information to others or is this a government looking to beat the rest of the world to a vaccine or both
3: yeah well uh, that's where i was going to wind up Uh, you never quite know where the paving will lead and who could ultimately be profiting from these kinds of things. You even find yourself at the lapping edge of the waters of uh, money laundering in some regards. Uh, such is the potential for all of these kinds of things as tools, because in the end, the uh, these hacking techniques and the hacking technology really are tools that can be put to a variety of uses and we see that illustrated almost day-to-day these days there are uh, some issues that are very important that didn't particularly get mentioned or seem to get mentioned in the latest Western government statement and one is the obligation on governments of course but also on industry to secure the nature of their work mm. it's one thing for us to bleach as we are entitled to do about uh, foreign hostile entities attempting to uh, breach the security of private businesses or other concerns. But uh, what is their obligation, and including to perhaps their own shareholders, if you, knowing that the environment is absolutely fraught with these kinds of threats, go merrily about your day as though it were 1953 – And, uh, you know, you're doing your research conscientiously, maybe doing spectacularly brilliant work at it, but you've left yourself completely vulnerable to all manner of manipulation and theft and robbery and so on by cyber means. Then at what point do you hold some responsibility and do your managers and directors hold responsibility for any failures? And there is another issue that's potentially quite sinister. If as a result of that kind of failure, those who breach your cyber walls, if they exist, are able to actually start manipulating your data on the inside. What are the uh, implications of that, including for those who may later on wind up consuming your medications and pharmaceuticals? Could it be that uh, you've got a kind of time bomb existing for the health of those individuals who ultimately rely on your products? So And then that becomes, uh, in many other ways, part of the business of the general public and government, because if government is in itself contributing, whether through subsidies or otherwise, to the well-being of these companies, then surely government and the taxpayer have a right to expect that there will be due diligence performed by uh, research companies that uh, are benefiting from public money. So it is a very great tangle.
0: As you mentioned, certainly not the first and won't be the last. How big is this one? Uh, Did they get anything in this of value?
3: Uh, One of the great challenges uh, is we don't know what we don't know. And uh, I am certainly not privy to any damage assessments, if indeed they're anywhere near complete at this point. It is, uh, though, a a signal kind of moment to find that signals intelligence-related organizations of the Western world, which are uh, characteristically very wary of making public statements, and uh, especially of naming specific foreign countries involved in these kinds of things. When, when they come out the way they have done in the last 24 hours or so, with such an apparently uh, coordinated uh, joint effort to alert the rest of us to all of this, you know we've reached a very particular moment in the history of cyber hacking and the threat that comes with it.
0: Talk about that a bit more because you mentioned that earlier. That uh, another thing that you, you, uh, was uh, had fallen on that you were impressed with was that the UK, the US, and Canada all seem to be rowing in the same direction on this. Which, in a divisive world, sometimes uh, <laughs> that's elusive. So, uh, mm-hmm. how important is a coordinated response here? Uh, will this is does this does this show a new unity in 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 a divisive world?
3: It very much seems to, and that was extremely well put up, I may say, because it's uh, been the case in the past, much to the frustration of, I think, many uh, of those who have been observing the, the situation, that uh, governments have really been uncomfortable. And, of course, signals intelligence organizations uncomfortable about getting specific in this sort of way, as I say, naming a foreign nation, because that gets them into the uglinesses that can attend... Diplomatic issues, political issues, and so on. It's easier in general if a government, uh, an intelligence organization, often in testimony before, say, parliamentary committees, were to say something like, uh, generic, something generic like, uh, well, state actors, foreign state actors are doing this or that, and we've got to be aware of this or that. But in this case, as you've said, this is. Pinpointing things very specifically to uh, an organization alleged to have been doing this within a specific named country, and uh, that that does mark something of a shift. We've seen this trend in development for a little bit, but uh, it sends a big signal to all the players, uh, including in the markets, including you know pharmaceutical and research organizations, universities, and others. And it's a multi-layered. um, Because, of course, cyber can operate in concert with some of the more old-fashioned versions of uh, competitive intelligence, industrial intelligence, where, to use an example that's amazingly common, you have perhaps individuals who've come from a country like China, who, uh, as a result of uh, their being incentivized, Uh, possibly they're being pressured very much against their will, uh, find themselves working in research facilities in a university and then being pressured by the uh, homeland government to uh, provide information that they've encountered uh, in, um, say, Canada to the homeland government uh, against a threat that if they were not to cooperate, They might find that they were not going to be able to get access to the homeland again uh, to see their relatives that their relatives could undergo all kinds of pretty hideous adverse treatment and so on and so forth we've seen this sort of thing with the soviet union when it existed no reason to imagine it doesn't go on with russia most certainly goes on with china so yeah you you know this is a a many splendid thing and the educational element is a big one, and the fact that Russia or any other country similarly placed might now have to expect that it will face a public relations, uh, <laughs> a, a public relations taint, uh, may not again terrify the uh, the gangsters, and I use the term advisedly in Moscow, but uh, it, it does introduce into the calculus of interest of the uh, Russian leadership. Some considerations and may make it harder for them to initiate overtures abroad in a variety of realms, including in commercial business terms. We've seen that China itself has uh, been undermined somewhat by its own hideous behavior in relation to the Wuhan COVID uh, um, uh, pandemic. Uh, well, you know, public relations can be worth something, and that's why such countries, after all, yeah. have long invested in influence operations, disinformation, and propaganda.
0: Uh, Twitter also saw a hack uh, the other day, and, and, and major users, uh, leaders like Barack Obama, Bill, uh, Bill Gates, and, and such had their accounts hacked. Uh, any relation here? Uh, any idea where this is coming from?
3: Uh, I don't uh, have any idea, but uh, you're back to some of the basic questions that uh, are not always asked as pointedly as they need to be, such as what has uh, Twitter done or what had Twitter done earlier in order to secure its interests and those interests of the people Mm. variously involved uh, to ensure this wouldn't happen. Um, And uh, these are, you know, these... These are really important things, and uh, I should mention here, and not by any means necessarily in relation to Twitter, because I don't know the details of their situation, but one difficulty that has been mentioned in the past with respect to some of the companies that can be targeted by any kind of cyber hacking is that at some point, some points, individuals, directors, and others of the relevant companies may be uneasy about admitting, even internally, to the fact that uh, they may be in jeopardy from a cyber hacking risk, uh, because perhaps those high up in a company may uh, feel their jobs would be at stake, or that they'd be obliged to come out and report, that would involve adverse publicity, maybe a drop in uh, share Mm -hmm. prices and so on, with the result then that penetration can continue so there are these dynamics that are really lurking and not immediately evident to many of us.
0: One, uh, one more question before we leave. Uh, has the bullying from China, not only for Canada, but, but those other allies, has this added to the shift in, in seeing a more united front amongst the allies as a result of this? In Russia, just another example of that, how we have to
3: stay united. God, I think that's uh, very true, that that is a good part of what's been going on. One of the challenges is that there is now a countervailing pressure. Um, you know, on the one hand, as you say, you, you've got a kind of awakening uh, long, long overdue vis-a-vis China and uh, places like Russia and so on. But there's a countervailing difficulty, especially with China, and the extent to which it's been able, through uh, wealth and other means, to penetrate influential circles uh, in Canada and the West. And what it means is now you've got a body of people here who, through economic interests or otherwise, um, who may, uh, how would I put it, be a bit soft on the Chinese threat, the Chinese interest. And so those of us who are wanting to see reasonable, responsible approaches to China's actually colonialism and imperialism, um, you know, witness what's been going on in Africa and elsewhere the Belt and Road initiative and the rest, even the part that China may have uh, played in um, the catastrophe of the Italian uh, Wuhan COVID pandemic. Hmm. Um, you look at all of that and you know, we may have a bit of work to do in making sure that no one in our circles of influence are, uh, would be uh, retarding the uh, progress we'd be making to awakening the public generally and seeing to it that our governments act in the national interest in order to contain China in these kinds of regards. It is uh, it is a very, uh, a very complicated thing. And this is why you have influence operations and why China has been a leading practitioner of these things. You want to compromise the inclination of foreign influential circles to uh, call a halt to Chinese uh, military, political and other aggressive activity
0: david harris has been with his insignia strategic group he is a terrorism expert talking about russian hackers trying to get access to COVID 19 vaccine data from the uk the united states and here in canada david as always thank you so much for the time and insight much appreciated be well great pleasure take care scott you're listening to the scott thompson show podcast on 900 chml all right uh here we are week number 18 of the COVID 19 experience, uh, the pandemic that has uh, literally changed everyone's lives and will continue to do so as we rebound from this because uh, the new normal will be a lot different than it was pre-COVID-19. And a new study from Angus Reid Institute finds that concerns about contracting the COVID-19 coronavirus are rebounding after initially declining, this after 18 or so weeks. Let's bring in Dave Krasinski, Research Director, Angus Reid Institute, and he is with us now. Dave, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well.
4: Yeah, you too. Things are going pretty well out here in Vancouver, so I got no complaints. We are seeing
0: increasing uh, in numbers in your poll here of those that are worried about COVID nineteen. Talk about then and now how uh, there was sort of a decline and now that uh, that concern has has uh, has risen again.
4: Yeah, so we've been doing this. You mentioned it's eighteen weeks. We've been we've been polling on the coronavirus. Our first one was February fourth to fifth, and mm-hmm. for just a baseline, we had thirty percent of people who were worried about it at that time. The peak was 73% who were worried about becoming sick uh, at the beginning of April. And that's kind of around where uh, Canada's numbers were peaking as well. And as our numbers have start- had started to fall, uh, concern was falling. But uh, w- what's interesting is that there's kind of been a disconnect now from falling numbers in Canada and concern. So in May, we were at 59% who said that they were worried about potentially becoming sick. And then in June it was 46%, and at the time, we were averaging about 600 cases per day nationally. We're at half that level now, so about 300 nationally, and a lot of that is because Ontario has gotten this uh, under control to such a large extent now, with only you know, 110 cases a day. Um, and despite the fact that cases have been cut in half since that period, uh, concern about the virus has jumped 13 points, so we're back to that May level again, uh, so I think that that's kind of an interesting uh, look into how, uh, you know, certain external factors, particularly south of the border, and some of the um, stories about international flights coming in uh, really are kind of uh, people are aware of those and are a little bit more worried now than they were in June, despite that we're in a better place right now when you look at just the, the, the pure numbers.
0: That was my next question, Dave, was uh, why the difference and what is the U.S. factor here? Are people in Canada, after, you know, my goodness, weeks ago what we saw in New York go through and what have you, and then the whole situation with, you know, people thinking it was a hoax in the United States and now mass flare-ups uh, in, in the southern United States. Has uh, Are people not only in Canada but around the world looking at that and rethinking this?
4: I think so. You know, I think it's uh, it's been a very... Um, difficult thing for people outside of the United States to understand kind of the, the handling of the situation and the politicizing of the situation. And, you know, Canadians have a lot of ties to, to the U.S. When you think about uh, friends and family members, there people who make uh, trips in the summer. You know, we, most of the country lives very close to the border. Uh, certainly out here in Vancouver, people are, uh, Uh, at this time of year, usually going down and watching Mariners games. And, and it's, it's, there's a real kind of, uh, uh, relationship that I think people are looking at now and saying, you know, we don't necessarily have, uh, a way, a foolproof way to prevent cases from coming to the United States. We still have people traveling, um, in, you know, non-essential capacities, um, we've got people the The interesting stories that we've been hearing about with the uh the alaska loophole where right. you say you're going to alaska you're allowed to come into the country and and uh, border officials are not allowed to uh reject people who who are saying that and and they've been uh, found in different communities uh, across the country people who said they were going and then have just been hanging out and i think there really is a level of concern that uh it, it's not necessarily something that we have full control over and until the United States gets it sorted out, it's going to be a, a very different world for the rest of us just because of how close the relationship is and all of the, the kind of um, kind of close proximity that, that we have with uh, our most important trading partner and uh, our, our uh, friends south of the border. So I think that really is what's driving it. And you see, you know, Canada having 300 cases a day and If you look at the United States' reported cases today is already at 32,000, so it might be heading into that 50,000 range again. So it's uh, it's a difficult one, I think, for a lot of Canadians to process and something that is generating uh, quite a bit of anxiety.
0: Um, You know, we've certainly heard that the Canada-U.S. border obviously closed, and now just uh, more recently that closure updated to August 21st uh now so people are assuming that the borders are closed but really there's been a lot of discussion in the last little while about if they're really closed or not we're certainly hearing of more uh air travel picking up we can certainly see and hear more planes uh in the sky and then as you mentioned with the the people uh traveling into into canada saying that they're heading up to alaska and then just kind of driving around and vacationing as uh they normally would do you think people are starting to question uh the security of the borders now
4: I think so. And, and, you know, we've seen in, in our folding people looking at the border closures and wanting them to last until 2021, a considerable number of Canadians. So it's not that, uh, you know, it's not even really a question. There's a lot of uh, uh, agreement across, um, you know, different levels of partisanship and demographics that you don't often see in polling. Everybody is kind of on the same page. But, yeah, you mentioned there, there really are, you know, if, if you're... Uh, a family member of of somebody who's in Canada, you you can cross over, you know, we're still getting uh, deliveries. There are still people who are coming across the border. And I think that um, there's a real concern that some of the quarantine measures are, you know, they're, they're backed by the law, but they are uh, voluntary in a sense. And unless you're, you know, catching somebody, there's a sense that, that people might not, uh, you know, Follow all of those those rules that are put in place and I, I think that there's just a, a lot of concern that that uh, we have this kind of relationship that is so important and that we can't really afford to uh, to undermine but there there is um, a sense among Canadians that it's something that they they don't want to see open for for quite a long time uh, so you know, I think that it's people really are kind of taking it upon themselves. You know we have to ask this question about uh, whether or not you're wearing a mask most of the time, and you know, we've got more than half of Canadians who are doing that. And I think that's a bit of a response to uh, the concern levels and trying to keep it keep cases down at the community level. And I, I think we're seeing a lot of success in that in in finding outbreaks across the country and kind of keeping them low and and contact tracing. And I think that the element that the United States brings to it is just kind of an uncertainty and, and uh, people seeing how it's being handled down there and potentially not being taken as seriously. And, and in this country, uh, if people really have, there's, there are not a lot of people who are uh, you know, calling it a, a hoax in Canada mm-hmm. or not taking it seriously. And, and you see that in the levels of concern and the fact that 75% of Canadians say that they're they're concerned about friends or family contracting COVID. So the, the concern levels are still very high, I think, uh, despite the fact that we've got our case load down quite a bit.
0: Now, does that translate into mask use? Most think it's a good idea, but are we wearing them?
4: Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that um, support for mandatory masks is about 75% across the country. We've seen that in not only our institute's polling, but uh, other polls that have been released this week. And it's right around that three-quarter mark. And that's interesting because only 20% of Canadians say that they always wear a mask uh, when Hmm. they go out into public spaces. And 35% on top of that say that they wear them most of the time. So they know when they're they're going into a space where people are going to be around, they are wearing a mask. But that's still just 55%. So we're still 20% shy of the number who say that the masks should be mandatory. Uh, For a lot of people, uh, 45% say they rarely wear one or or never wear one. And uh, that's really connected to concern levels. When you ask people who are very concerned about getting sick, 81% of them say that they always wear it or they wear it at least when they know they're going to contact somebody. For people who aren't at all concerned, which is a smaller group in Canada, but still a a significant group, 85% of that group say they rarely or never wear a mask, regardless Mm. of where they're going out into public spaces. So you can see a real divide there in how seriously people are taking it and whether they're wearing masks. But uh, we've got the majority who say that they are adopting them, and 75% who say that they should be mandatory in indoor spaces. So I think that's something that a lot of uh, municipal governments are moving on right now. Quebec has passed it at the provincial level. Um, and it's something that Canadians are amenable to, even if they're kind of neglecting to do that themselves.
0: You're talking about uh, Angus Reid collecting information data on this since back in February. How has the attitude changed? What's it like looking at what you were doing back in February, even March, compared to where we are and what you're hearing and seeing
4: now? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, I think the, the biggest thing is that um, we, we were hitting that, that kind of normalcy with it, where people were just kind of getting used to it. And uh, most people, when we ask them, you know, are you still social distancing? Are you still uh, being vigilant with hand washing and and the kind of things that they've been asked to do? uh, People are still taking it it quite seriously. The one thing that we're seeing, um, and this is forthcoming data here, though, is that people are very, very tired. Um, I think that the mental wear and tear just from doing the same thing daily, or if you go somewhere having to be worried about what you're touching and who you're in contact with, or if you go to a different community, a lot of people, when they come back, will just self isolate and, and you're trying not to do anything. It's exhausting. Yeah. The the number one word that Canadians use to describe how they're feeling about the whole situation now is fatigued. Yeah. Um, Boredom is, is close behind that, but uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a difficult situation. It's one where Canadians, I think, are being vigilant. And, and you're really seeing that in that we've opened up a lot of the provincial economies. People are back out at restaurants and going out. And we haven't seen a big spike. And when we do see cases, I think they are being controlled uh, relatively well. Um, but what you see with people getting back to normal is that now we've got that concern level rising because they're seeing more people and seeing how easily... Uh, the virus can be transmitted if you don't take it seriously. If you're in a place like, you know, Florida or, or even California, both coasts of the United States, it really is kind of uh, out of control. And there's, while there's a lot of people who aren't worried about the risk of hospitalization or death necessarily mm-hmm. – they are worried about other people uh, in in their in their close circle. So I think that's what's what what people are dealing with now, and what is so fatiguing is just the constant worry of this thing that you can't see. Uh, so I think that's that's the one thing that kind of stands out from February is concern went up and then it went down, and now it's going back up again. And I think people are, are you know just having a tough time not being able to adjust to finding a new normal at this point.
0: Uh, on that point, and, you know, obviously the, what I'm about to talk about might be a little premature, but many say we will not go back to whatever that new normal is until there is a vaccination of some sort. Will everybody be lining up for a vac- for a vaccination or will we see the anti-vaxxer mentality? Um, w- will people hesitate? I mean, very much like the flu shot, you know, not everybody gets it. W- when the vaccination does become available, what do you think the interest is going to be like?
4: Yeah, you know, I think people, generally, we don't see a huge group of of anti-vax in Canada. There is um, a, a, you know, a a non-zero portion. We we do get a lot of people, you know, there's a recent poll that wasn't done by us, but was done by another organization that found that 72% of Canadians said that they supported a mandatory coronavirus vaccine. So that gives you an idea of uh, how many people want it to, be something that everybody has to get, not necessarily mm-hmm. something that they want to get themselves. But twenty-eight percent um, say that they don't. Uh, they don't think that that's something that should be mandatory. So there is a group of Canadians who uh, want the right to kind of choose whether or not they do that. Um, so that that's going to make things relatively difficult. But it would um, it, it does kind of at least make it comfortable for for you as an individual. I think that's what what people are looking for because. Even now, if you've had the coronavirus, there's not the the amount of evidence um, in in terms of the length of time that the antibodies will stay in your system and how effective they are from getting sick again. It is a very difficult thing to understand, and we don't really know if if it will cycle around and you can pick it up again. At least if you have an effective vaccine that works for most people and it works for most of the time, there is just a sense of you can get back to a bit of normal and you don't have to be worried about being in crowds. And if people don't want to get it, then at least they they have the opportunity to to say that, and then they have to you know live with the consequences. Um, but people who do want it would be able to kind of get back to normal. So I think the the sense is that in Canada, uh, people would be kind of lining up for it, especially people who are older um, and are having a very difficult time right now, not mm. not being able to go out, not being able to see family members, and and if they are at least, doing that at least being very worried about it and what the consequences might be so i think there will be a lot of demand for for that once it comes out
0: dave krasinski has been with us research director at the angus reed institute a new study from angus reed saying that uh the the uh, concern about contacting covid19 is rebounding after declining dave thanks for the time and insight much appreciated be well
4: yeah no problem i hope mr ford uh, shows up for you guys soon
0: <laughs> Here's hoping too, or at least lets us know. Thanks, Dave. Much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on nine hundred CHML. This is the Scott Thompson podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast, or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.